0: That's, that's the story that we're telling. Like, the, we knew that the 125 carbureted bike was not going to perform up there. We knew we were going to have to push. Intellectually, we knew, but we just didn't think about what that's like. Would we have chosen that knowing um, all the complaining and all the pain and all the suffering? I would say, probably 100%. The answer is yes. <laughs>
1: This is Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. we got a good boom for you. Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists. It's made in the USA, has a lifetime warranty. They are the place to buy Googletech filters in North America. Their website: triplew.cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online, ready to ship to your door. MaxBMW.com. That's MaxBMW.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear makes heavy-duty strapping systems to fit all motorcycles. You can turn any bag into panniers using their unique strapping system. All available at greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Simon. I'm Phil. Ted. 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 Ted <laughs> Just hey, okay. no, I'm Lost Events. How much funs? I'm David. I'm No One. I'm London Boston. I'm Jamie Goldstraw. I'm Grant Johnson. I'm Ben King, and
0: you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, that was um, something I never really thought of experiencing or thought I would experience. You know, we knew when we selected the... Uh, yeah. Hey, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Uh, I can hear we'll you well. well. Hey, well. Jim. Yeah, are you good with that? Yes. So I think that I've gotten all my mutes properly muted. I've got <laughs> headphones there. Yeah, that's what I have on. Altitude sickness. Okay. Adam, my name's Tom, Adam, Tom. Tom. <laughs> Yeah, that was um, something I never, never really thought of experiencing or thought I would experience. You know, we knew when we selected the Yamaha XTZ-125 and we selected going through the Annapurna Conservation Area in the Himalayas um, before reaching our destination. We knew that we were going to have issues with richness in the bikes, and, uh, but we didn't know what that meant. The heavier riders, you know, were concerned more than maybe the lighter riders, but all of us needed to be concerned because every one of us ended up pushing um, the 125 uphill on multiple occasions. Uh, so, you know, once you hit that certain elevation where the mixture isn't going to work, then it's just not going to carry you up, you know, a particular grade. And what that grade was, you know, maybe nine percent, twelve percent, whatever it was, we hit it quite a bit. So you find yourself trying to get momentum and get as far as you can, you know, high pointing almost, right? And we were seeing who could get highest, so who would have to hike the least, <laughs> and, um, and then hopping off. And, and some would choose to try and sit and paddle and, and push, you know, by paddling uphill. But, of course, you, don't, you can't get leverage that way. And so we quickly learned that just stepping off, standing to the side of the bike, uh, revving as best we could, feathering the clutch, and with an unweighted bike we found that it was able to get traction and keep going and and we could kind of run or walk uh, alongside of it um, but again you're still doing this at 13 and 14000 feet so there were people just ripping their helmets off you know after walking for a couple of minutes trying to find more oxygen not that that's actually going to get you more oxygen but you just felt like you were you know choking and, um, so yeah, it was quite a scene. And, and again, we, we, it, we happened over and over again because we kept hitting climbs. And even when we thought we were done climbing, we would hit another climb and then we would find some deep silt and you've got to get off the bike and push it uphill. So it became uh, a running joke, uh, but also a source of serious frustration for some people. And I guess, thankfully we had a crew of very young, sturdy, Uh, riders, two of them who we brought with us in their mid twenties who were great riders and also very fit. And then the, the lead rider and the tail riders who, ended up walking bikes for a lot of people. There were just some folks who just were gassed and couldn't, just couldn't do it. And so these guys are running laps They're They run down, grab your bike, run it uphill, run down, grab another bike, run it uphill. So we, we, had, we had Sherpas, <laughs> we had Moto Sherpas, uh, pushing bike after bike, after bike. Cause again, we have 15 XTZs, you know, so that's a lot of bikes. And, um, uh, and they were doing it again and again. So, Yeah, that's just a scene and an experience, you know, that I don't necessarily want to have again. All of us were coveting, you know, when somebody would come by on a Royal Enfield, you know, and just kind of go, you know, bombing on up the hill or maybe once in a while a CRF or something like that would come flying by us and we're all salivating. Um, But that's not the bike the Rangers need. That's not the bike they asked for. And so we, you know, we were bringing the 125s. And so that was uh, certainly will, will be something that every rider who did it will talk about for a long time. My name is Tom Medema, and I am a co-founder of the Rally for Rangers project. Um, By night, by day, I'm a park ranger in the United States, but um, most of my free time is spent with uh, Rally for Rangers delivering motorcycles to park rangers around the world.
1: Can you talk more about what it's like to um, starve for oxygen? You said people were ripping their clothes off, you know, trying to get more oxygen. What's that feel like?
0: Yeah, it's really, really uncomfortable feeling. I mean, I have been, I've, you know, as a ranger here in the States, I've worked in parks uh, in the, in the Rockies where I've hiked up over 14,000 feet. And, but again, you're hiking and you're kind of gradually working into it. You're not sprinting. And, uh, this is a little bit more like, uh, you know, where you're seated. And so you're not working terribly hard. And then all of a sudden you're working at maximum. And so there just isn't enough doesn't feel like, you know, there's enough oxygen. And so you're, you're, you're panting and panting and just trying to get more. And when the helmet's on, you know, you feel like it's blocking you from getting the oxygen that you need. And it's a, it is for some of us, it was a little bit of a panicked feeling, even though I think intellectually we knew we were okay. Um, there just isn't enough oxygen up there when you're exerting yourself that hard to ease into it. And so we would find ourselves, you know, after we hiked up, whatever stretch we hiked up, you know, just dropping to our knees and just fumbling to peel our helmets off, assuring ourselves that that would get us more oxygen, you know, to recover. Um, and then after a couple minutes, you know, of panting and in your body recovering a little bit, your heart rate slows down, you know, then you realize that you're going to be okay and, and you hope that you never have to do it again. And 15 minutes later, you're doing the exact same thing. Uh, there's not much of a way around it, you know, and it's not a matter of being out of shape necessarily, although... Again, being a little bit more youthful and, and perhaps more in shape, there's certainly – and people living at that elevation obviously makes a huge difference. But most of us came from sea level, and we eased our way up. We didn't just go straight to 13, 14,000 feet. That was several days in, right? But still, there, there's no way that you can exert yourself to you know, maximum capacity at that elevation and not be you know, seriously impacted by it. So um, it was very uncomfortable you know, for certain people, no question. And then there were others who figured out, look, these guys are going to come get my bike. So like they just would drop it and just start walking. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, you know, the, one of the younger guys would go running past them back downhill and they would just meet them at the top and they just got so frustrated and understandably that they were just like, you know what, I'm out. And they would just kind of slowly walk up. And so they wouldn't get to that point of, of, you know, panting and bending over and, you know, trying to get oxygen. But unfortunately we didn't have any real, uh, altitude sickness. That's always a threat, you know, when you go to that elevation and we had a medical team with us and they gave everybody the altitude sickness, uh, preparation medicine and so on. And everybody did their due diligence with that. And certainly, you know, there was little headaches here and there, but, um, no, you know, real elevation issues that, that certainly you do find sometimes. So we're really ble- pleased, uh, how we got through it.
1: You mentioned the terrain. It's a steep hill. Describe that in more detail.
0: Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're in the Himalayas, you know, and this is, um, the, the terrain there was, uh, far, far more challenging than I expected. We've obviously done a number of rallies in Mongolia and and ridden through the steppe and up into the Altai mountains, but the combination of, uh, single track, rough, rocky, um, difficult technical terrain, at least a thousand foot sheer terrain cliff drop off, you know, on one side or the other traffic, um, like, you know, trucks and other things coming up against you, um, you know, different ups and downs, uh, rivers that come across waterfalls that come down and roll right across or right down the trail. I mean, just challenge after challenge after challenge. And then you add again, the, the exposure and the fact that you're at 13,000 feet. And it was a type of riding that, that, None of us had, not any of the 15 people on the rally had experienced, you know, quite all of those things in combination with each other. So it's pure focus. You know, that was one thing I was thankful for. Um, When I looked at some of the pictures in the film after we were done, I could not believe the exposure um, that I was, you know, two or three feet or five feet away from because I didn't see it in the moment. I was completely focused on the trail, you know, the rocks, the water, um, the navigation, when we were going to go up next how I was going to get my speed up to make it up the next rise. Um, <clears throat> so, so lots of kind of cut into the side of the mountain, you know, type riding and always having to be aware of uncovering traffic of, of rock fall coming down from the cliff next to you, water coming down the rider in front of you. Um, you know, so many things that you have to focus on uh, that. Thankfully the exposure really didn't get to many of us because uh, quite surprisingly, we just didn't notice it because we were so, so focused on what we were doing. Um, but it is truly, truly high mountain travel, and I know you find that in, in other countries, and I have not yet been. I've, I've listened to certainly plenty of riders who, who you talk to on a regular basis going to Bolivia and Peru and other parts of the world and, and have had similar experiences. And um, this certainly lived up to, uh, to the billing uh, you know, of, of being high mountain uh, dangerous travel.
1: Now you're not on a chain gang doing this. This is this is not something you're forced to do. You're not in an Ironman contest, Ironman, where you're you're trying to compete to win a, a prize for this. What the heck are you doing up there pushing your bike up a mountain in such yeah. tough conditions?
0: <laughs> That's a really good question. I think most of us have been asking ourselves that question. You know, the goal was to get the motorcycles to Chitwan National Park which is in the southern part of Nepal on the Indian border. It's down in in the very temperate um, kind of rainforest jungle type of zone. And so we could have chosen to ride from Kathmandu uh, south. We could have taken a much easier route. What we always try to do in these rallies – is to add uh, different types of experience and different types of landscapes so the riders get a full picture of the country and the types of parks they have there. And, of course, the Himalayas are a draw, right? You, you look from Kathmandu and you look down towards Chitwan and you see that if you go the other way, you know, we, you can go to Annapurna Conservation Area, which is a huge protected space um, in Nepal and into the upper Mustang region which is, is very rare. They only issue uh, a few thousand permits a year to visitors to the upper Mustang, uh, Loman Thang, and up to the Tibet border there. So, um, so we, we made a conscious choice. <laughs> Even knowing that we were on 125s and being told that we were gonna have to push, that didn't really register, I don't think, for what that meant exactly. Um, but that was a huge draw for people, and that's part of what we're doing here in, in, in recruiting people to do rallies with us is creating an adventure, creating an experience that they're going to be able to have along the way, not only to give the bikes a little bit of a test and to break the bikes in, um, but to experience and see the country and the challenges that are faced by the rangers that we're giving the motorcycles to. So hindsight 2020, would we have – chosen that knowing, um, all the complaining and all the pain and all the suffering, I would say probably a hundred percent. The answer is yes, (laughs) but, but we might have parked the one twenty fives in Jomsom and rented (laughs) Royal Enfields to do (laughs) those couple of days.
1: Um, well, you've mentioned rallies, you mentioned giving bikes away, you've mentioned Rangers.
0: What are you doing? Well, Rally for Rangers is is all about equipping park rangers around the world um, to better do their job, to do it more safely, more efficiently, and, you know, to protect the the heritage that that we all need that's out there, both the cultural heritage that tells our collective human story, um, but also the natural heritage. You know, in this particular case, we're talking about uh, one of the most endangered species in the world is the one-horned rhinoceros that lives in southern Nepal um, and also the Bengal tiger. Um, two critically threatened species um, that need rangers on constant 24-hour vigil to protect. And the only way that they can navigate some of the terrain in some of these places, you know, is by having decent, reliable transportation. And bicycles aren't always going to do it. SUVs aren't always going to do it. And a lot of times they don't even have those things. And so we're not introducing motorcycles. I think that's important for people to understand. We're bringing motorcycles to places where they're already in use, but we're bringing better motorcycles. Mostly what these countries can afford um, is really, really cheap and really can't do the job and can't get them very far, can't get them very fast and can't do it safely. So we bring better motorcycles um, to help park rangers protect these special places. And, I mean, we'd love to get a new motorcycle in the hands of every park ranger in the world who needs one, you know. And that's a, it's a pretty broad mission. And, um, but there's a lot of people out there we're finding who both want to help protect these special places and want to have an adventure doing it. And so everybody wins. You know, we get this incredible adventure. They get a new motorcycle. And um, they, uh, they do a better job, uh, you know, of protecting um, and then I think since we last spoke, uh, you know, two of the motorcycles that we donated in Northern Mongolia were burned by poachers. Um, mm-hmm. they actually burned, burned the bikes in the shed, you know, that housed them. And, um, you know, we realized when that happened as, as angry as we were <laughs> that that was a clear sign that the motorcycles were having an impact, um, on them negatively. And that's a good thing. And so we replaced those motorcycles last year. Um, but if the poachers are noticing and, um, you know, being threatened by, by the new motorcycles, then we know that they're having an impact. And so we keep hearing more and more stories now that we've been doing this for a while. We're up to over 100 motorcycles donated now, I think, um, that it's working. And so that, that just compels you to do it even more.
1: Rally for Rangers is set up to, um, as you said, bring motorcycles to uh, rangers that need it in different parts of the world, that need the transportation. But you, you're basically taking people over to a country, you're buying these motorcycles, you're doing an adventure, and then you're giving the bikes to the rangers.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And we you know, we locally source the bikes. We don't ship bikes over there. We, we make sure that the money goes into the pocket of of a dealer, you know, wherever we happen to go, we've used the, the Yamaha AG 200 is our motorcycle of choice when we can find it. And that is all over Mongolia. So we always use that in Mongolia going down to Argentina last year. We, we couldn't afford, we just couldn't afford to raise the money, um, for Yamahas or Hondas or something like that. And so we went with a, a beta Argentina, uh, beta 2.0, which is a 200 CC bike, um, which is a whole nother story in 40 knot winds in, you know, Tierra del Fuego on a little 200. Mm-hmm. Um, but we sourced the betas from uh, from Buenos Aires. And then here we bought Yamahas from the, from the Yamaha dealer in Kathmandu. So again, a good trying to support, you know, we're not shipping on our own bikes. We're not buying them somewhere else. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to buy locally and make sure that that money helps, you know, locally as well. Uh, and then they also have a, a bike that's in their country that, that gets sold. So there's parts that are available because that's another question people ask is, well, you know, do you then maintain the bikes after you donate them? And the answer to that is is no. We do bring extra parts with us and leave them with extra tires and extra batteries and extra spark plugs and clutch levers and things like that, but they are currently maintaining, you know, their own bikes. So this isn't, again, we're not introducing a new tool to them. So they've been taking care of their own bikes for as long as they've had them. So they know how to, how to take care of bikes. And we'll have the Yamaha guys give them a walkthrough, you know, or, or whatever on whatever bike we bring. Um, but then they go ahead and maintain it, you know, in perpetuity going forward. And if they need our help, then they ask us and we can try to supply more, more parts as well. Um, but yeah, so that's the, you know, everybody's on the exact same bike. People aren't bringing their own bikes. Nobody's bringing big bikes. Like we're all suffering <laughs> in, some, <laughs> in some cases on the same small bike because that's what the rangers need. They don't need, you know, an 800 GS. They can't use that. They need a, a reliable, fixable, inexpensive, but reliable tool.
1: Well, and that's where a lot of NGOs have gone wrong in the past. We've heard stories about you know tractors being to deliver delivered to farmers, and they're great while they're running, but the moment they break down, they they can't repair them, and they don't have the the infrastructure there for them. There's all that missing. So it's interesting that you're you're sticking with bikes that are local, but you are upgrading them to a, a higher quality bike. Does that not add to their expense of repairs?
0: Yeah, no, it can. There's you know if you're if you are not using <clears throat> um, you know the the Chinese product there that they can get for a few hundred bucks in in using the Yamaha instead um then when they do have repairs and it depends on the parts that they need but we've also found that the the dealers in country really help them out like they get bought into this when when we were in Kathmandu the dealer the Yamaha dealer in Kathmandu had set up all the bikes out on the street had custom printed a huge banner you know, with their logo and our logo on it. And they're interested in helping these things sustain for the long term. They'd like us to come back. You know, they'd like to do more. Uh, they get marketing and branding out of it as well. So they've committed, you know, to help uh, in the long run. And so, you know, we we hope that by introducing a, a brand where the parts are kind of ubiquitous um, and also where they can, if they if they need to locally source, you know, a, a clutch lever or a shift lever or, you know, some of the things that might kind of break down more routinely, a chain, things like that. They can get those parts aftermarket. They don't. They don't have to go, uh, you know, and get a, a Yamaha branded part for that. Obviously, so we've been finding so far when, when we went back um, on this year's Mongolia rally, we went to two or three locations on the way this year where we had previously bought bikes and those rangers came out to meet us. So we saw bikes all the way back to 2014 that we had donated with thousands of kilometers on them. We saw bikes from 2015 and 2017. together yeah, there were three different vintages of donated rally for ranger bikes that came back to see us Mm. and they look great they are they are just they're they're running they're they've got you know again tens of thousands of kilometers on them um they're still proud of them and uh they wanted us to see them on their bikes and see these bikes still in use so we're really really pleased with kind of the longevity and the staying power of what we're doing
1: I, I've pretty, I probably asked you this before when we talked last time, but um, why bikes? Is this just a way to sort of stitch bikes in because you're a biker or whoever started this as a biker? I mean, how do bikes come in here and what's the advantage of, of dealing with motorcycles for them over just raising cash?
0: Yeah. And, you know, there again, the just raising cash would find limited success um, because you don't have the direct connection to the cause. And uh, so when you when you you know tell people in uh, the story that you're going to personally go and deliver this motorcycle um, on your behalf, on their behalf, uh, and not just write a check, then the checkbooks op- tend to open wider and you tend to get more money from it. Um, that whole idea of participation, People love that. And people want to donate to that. The, everybody, you know, is, is reticent to just give money to some kind of unknown cause and the money's going to go off into the ether. If they see the motorcycle and they see the ranger and they see the pictures and they know what's going to happen. Um, we have found, you know, tremendous success now with almost a hundred different riders raising almost $10,000 a piece, um, you know, to fund this adventure and this, this gift to this park ranger. It's amazing. The proof is in the concept. And so, you know, they have motorcycles already. And again, that's the thing, right? We have seen them and that's how this whole thing started was in Mongolia was seeing a park ranger whose tool no longer worked and it had to be replaced. And so there was just this movement created around replacing these Outdated, outmoded and poor functioning motorcycles with new ones. And so you capture the passion of of adventure riders and we know that passion, right? You probably know it as well as anybody. These people love to ride, but we also find, and I'm hearing more and more on your podcast, Jim is about people who are traveling because they love the experience of seeing other cultures of meeting other people of being reminded of what, what really matters and how we're all connected Um, And that it's not just about having the biggest, shiniest bike with the best bags and all this stuff. People are touring on all kinds of equipment to all places around the world because we all love the same thing. We all love meeting new people. Uh, We all love the adventure of travel, trying new things and helping uh, and learning about other cultures. And so this is one opportunity where somebody gets to to take an adventure in a country where they never maybe thought about going with a group of people, like-minded people uh, who are ready and, and able to do the same thing with the purpose of getting to know that country, getting to know its parks and its people, and then leaving this gift behind, um, you know, of a brand new four or $5,000 motorcycle that this ranger could have never ever gotten another way. Um, it really is something that is inspiring more and more people all the time to want to participate. And it's really fun to be a part of.
1: It's a pretty unique setup here and, and, uh, and really one that, that works so well because you've got a person that may be interested in participating. They don't even have to pay for it all themselves. They raise the money from people around them, uh, all for a good cause. They go on a vacation. They have an incredible adventure. They're helping people. Um, they have integration into the locals that you wouldn't otherwise get because you have an organization doing it. And then, like you say, walking away knowing you just did something great with your vacation. Um, why don't these countries just fund their own parks? Like, why are they so short?
0: <laughs> well, that's a great question. And, and I think a lot of people, if you asked them here in the States, would say, why doesn't the National Park fund its own parks? Um, we have this huge debate going on right now about this $12 billion maintenance backlog in the national parks here in the U.S. And there are several bills in Congress that have been in Congress for years to make up this backlog. We have failing roads, failing bridges, houses that are falling down. And we have arguably the most well-funded national park system anywhere in the world. But we still don't you know, have enough uh, to meet the need. And so you go to see some of these developing countries and – public lands, you know, and national parks are one of their last thoughts. Like they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to develop trade. Um, you know, in Mongolia, they're just trying to build their economy. And that economy is based on copper. And so that's based on mining, which is antithetical, you know, to land resource protection in a lot of cases. So uh, trying to get them to invest. Um, and that's part of, of what we do too, is bring visibility to this. I One of our My co-founder, Wesley, um, and his wife, Ono, they were in Kathmandu after the Nepal rally and they got stopped in a store and said, hey, your, your story was on the national news. You guys just donated some bikes, right? And so we were actually unknown to us. We were on the national news in Nepal about what we were doing. And so those, those kind of things are added benefits that people see what we're doing and it, it helps to grow the economy of the place. Public lands, national parks we're finding in tourism are, are growing the economy of some of these developing nations. And so if we can get them to do more around protection of species and special places so that people will come from other countries and spend their money to visit and be a tourist there – well, that's a, that's an income and a source of, of for their economy that isn't related to extraction and things that actually harm, you know, the environment. So, um, so that kind of investment is something that we just don't see enough of in in developing countries. And so, we're helping to bring some awareness to that. Um, and if we can be on, uh, you know, the national news in places like Mongolia and Nepal, showing that the international community loves their parks and is investing in their parks, then they might do more of it as well.
1: I want to go back to the the trip itself, the adventure itself that you're doing, because this is the real this is the real crux of what you're doing. It's the draw that brings everyone in. How do you come up with the adventure, and can you talk about what the adventure is?
0: Yeah, I mean, adventure. Adventure is a state of mind, right? It's that's it's a it's different for everyone, Um, and that was something something we talk about on a trip. When you have fifteen people coming together to do the exact same route on the exact same motorcycle, each one of those fifteen people is going to have a different kind of adventure because of the experience you know that they have. Um, And I was just listening to uh, Southward Chronicles the other day, and in in that couple two different types of adventure, right? He, she, she needs a little bit less adventure. He needs a little bit more, but the, the same route provides very different adventure levels of adventure for the, for different people. And so when we're planning, uh, you know, and trying to execute one of these, these routes, as I mentioned, we, we obviously want to touch a lot of open space in national parks, not just the, where we're donating the motorcycles, because we want people to see um, all the different aspects of what a country has and what the Rangers go through, and, and some of the challenges you know, that they face. And so, what they do on a daily basis is an adventure necessarily to them. It's, it's what they do. And yet when we go over there and, and start riding on the terrain that they patrol every day, it's all sorts of adventure for us. Um, so you also get some perspective, you know, that way. So we want to plan routes that are, I guess, technically speaking, they're around a thousand kilometers. That's what we figure is over the course of, of seven to nine days riding, in the places where we go, uh, in Mongolia in particular, you know, 900 to 1200 kilometers roughly, you know, kind of figures out to be the right amount of time in the saddle every day. Cause you don't, you don't want 10 hour days. Um, you don't want four hour days, you, but you don't know. That's the thing. That's what I, what I preach on every introductory phone call to every rally. The first thing that I say after I say hello, and we do introductions are the two words, adaptability and flexibility. Because things are going to go wrong. In Mongolia this year, we had scheduled a ferry ride. Um, we got to the ferry, nobody in sight. Nobody around for hundreds of miles, probably. And so we decided we would try to take the ferry across ourselves. So we loaded some bikes up on on the ferry and started to to use the, the navigation tools to get it across. Halfway across, we realized there's an underwater cable. The ferry's locked. We can't get across, so we come back and we sit there and we're waiting. And the ferry operator never shows up, so we have to camp right there next to the ferry. We lost half a day because he forgot um, that he was supposed to come and, and operate the ferry that day. And he showed up the next morning, and we went across. But that's a classic example: swollen rivers, you know, bridges that have been washed out, um, any number of things can create this opportunity for you to flex and to adapt. And that's part of adventure, right? That's that, that not that unknown, not knowing what route is going to be like, not knowing uh, where you're going to be from one day to the next, not knowing exactly where you're going to sleep on any given day. Um, Those are the things that create uh, the adventure. We do what we can to mitigate that. We have a strong support team on every rally. We don't ride with fully loaded bikes because once again, we want to create a situation where the bikes are not going to be destroyed. Right by the time we get to our destination. So if we pack them up and load them down, uh, the shocks, the springs, the bikes are going to face a lot more trauma along the way. So we have support vehicles that come along with us and carry all of our gear. Um, but sometimes you get separated from that gear, and you have to adapt and you have to flex. We had a night in uh, in Mongolia this year where we sat around the gear, the yurt, uh, at dinner time. And the guy across from me is wearing his his, moto, his motocross boots, uh, his motoskivvies, shorts, uh, and uh, some kind of a jacket, no shirt. And pretty much everybody in the room was dressed somewhat similarly because we all wanted to get out of our gear. But we had nothing to get into because our support vehicle um, had broken down and our gear didn't show up until well after midnight. And we had nothing but our riding gear, and so it was various states of undress for dinner, um, which is again another one of those <laughs> scenes that you that you don't readily forget. So you can plan, you can plan, you can plan, but the adventure is in the unplanned, right? The adventure is in what you don't know. It's in it's in what's around the next corner, what's over the next rise, um, and in those accidents that do happen. You know, we have we had one broken hand. Uh, on this trip, thankfully, only only one. Um, we had lots and lots of crashes on this trip just because of the nature of the terrain. Um, but we had some riding after dark. And, and one of the, the riders, unfortunately, met uh, a motorcycle coming the opposite direction with no headlight. And he had to ditch in the dark and, and broke his hand and ended up missing most of the rally. He had to sit in the truck and, and ride up most of the rally.
1: Why is the other motorcycle coming towards him with no headlight?
0: Well, that seems to be – I don't want to say it's the norm in Nepal, but we saw it again and again. That was one of the frightening things about riding there. Um, Number one is the roads and just the constant passing that happens and the different speeds of traffic. But after dark, I was stunned at how many vehicles – Uh, didn't have functioning headlights. And so the, that situation devolved into a little bit of an argument and um, we ended up, you know, just having to walk away. But uh, you know, typically our, the, the accidents that we, crashes that we have are, you know, like when I go down, I went down three times on this trip, and it's typically pilot error. And uh, that, in that situation, it wasn't. It was really an unfortunate um, you know, circumstance, and, and especially so then that he ended up with a broken hand and couldn't ride because it was his throttle hand, and he just there was no way he could, he could control the bike. Uh, so that's all part of the adventure as well. We bring a medic. Um, we plan uh, to, for, for these things to happen. And so we can address them adequately when they do. And uh, these folks have always been able to stick with us, you know, just ride up in the truck. Um, the mechanic tends to like it because he gets to jump out and on their bike and ride instead of sitting in the truck. <laughs> um, so he gets to have a little bit of that adventure too. Um, but boy, it is. It, it, adventure is uh, it's a great question, Jim, because it's so different for each one of us. And, um, I would have to say that, uh, for me, the adventure of Mongolia is still there after five trips, but it's moderated a little bit, right? Because you, you get good at it. You get, you get a little more comfortable. You get a little more understanding. My sense of adventure on this Nepal rally, um, was off the charts. I just never, even before we got out of Kathmandu, you know, I mean, driving on the wrong side of the road and, and people whose turn signals they're using the wrong way, right? Like they, they turn on the right turn signal because they want you to pass them, not because they're turning right. <laughs> well, I'm not going to pass you because you're going to turn right and hit me. Like that's, you know, you're you're constantly having these these mental conversations with yourself. Um, I got hit by a car in Kathmandu. or rubbed, I guess I should say. Um, side view mirror. You know, it's it's close quarters riding. It's uh, you swapping a lot of paint. It feels like a NASCAR event. Um, But it works like it's just how they operate. And there's just there's pedestrians and there's cows and there's uh, motorcycles and there's scooters and there's tractors and there's trucks and there's cars and they're all going everywhere all the time. And uh, it it really is just just getting out of Kathmandu was one of the most significant motorcycle adventures I've ever had. And that was within the first 15 minutes of the first day, Um, let alone climbing up into the Himalayas and, you know, all of that.
1: Well, one of the great things is from this compared to a, a uh, commercial trip that you would run is that when things go wrong, people know they've chosen to do this and they understand that things will go wrong. Whereas with a commercial trip, they're liable to be complaining and rating you on, uh, on whatever place they can rate you on and saying, they didn't have the truck there with our clothes and we had to sit in our, and we had to eat our dinner in our motorcycle clothes. So a huge difference in motivation and expectation uh, from the participants.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And we make sure that that's set up front too. Right off the bat, you are volunteering for Rally for Rangers. You're a volunteer. Um, This is not a tour. Uh, We are going on an adventure and we do have a route that we think we're going to follow. We do have some objectives, but we're not certain where we're staying every night. We do not know how long you're going to be on the bike every day. And people learn pretty quickly riding with me um, that even though I'm an organizer, I don't have the answers and uh within a couple of days they stop asking me questions because th- quite often they'll say how much further is it you know how much longer is today and and they're not saying it in a negative way they just they want to know of course i would like to know too but i know that there's not an answer um because i know that anything could be around that next corner um on this nepal trip for example we're climbing up this one lane mountain road and there's an excavator who has thrown its track and it's just sitting there. I don't know how long it's been there. I have no idea how they're going to fix it, um, but it's blocking the entire road side to side. And we basically had to carry the bikes to get, you know, past this excavator. Well, there's thirty minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And and then you know, there's a bridge that's out. Oh, we got it, or we made a wrong turn, um, you know, and we got to go back up and push the bike some more, <laughs> and uh, you know, so you learn pretty quickly. And and yeah, so they get it. People are in it. They know why they're in it. They're in it for the cause they're in it for the rangers they're in it for you know for the adventure and they realize that um hey we're and and i'm in the same boat you're in as a a quote-unquote organizer you and i are in the exact same situation um, I don't have my clothes either. <laughs> and uh, that is just the way it goes. And those are the things people talk about, right? Those are the things they remember. That's what, you know, makes it so special.
1: Well, it's real adventure, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's it one is. thing to have something all planned for you. And that's great. It has its bonuses as well. But I mean, this is obviously a real adventure where you're really going out there and and you're going to have to be the type of person that enjoys the unexpected, that enjoys the um, the things that will pop up and and make this. But But if you're not, I'm kind of surprised because most people, just like you said there, that's what they talk about. I mean, when we get people on the show, that's what they remember from their trips. They remember those incredible things. Well, this one time I was stuck for 18 hours at this border crossing. Those are the things that were so frustrating at the time, or at least could be potentially, that end up being the memories that make it, they're the nostalgia. That's what you sit back a few years down the road and think about and think, wow, remember when?
0: Yes, exactly right. And it's not always easy to think about that in the moment.
1: <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I mean, I've said this before in the show, but I can remember one time we were doing vehicle tests. It's Sunday night. It's starting to get dark. We've got a vehicle that's that's um, hydraulic. It's it's sucked in water. These are, are not our vehicles. They're all company vehicles, uh, like from different car manufacturers, vehicle manufacturers. And we're standing, uh, we're all waist deep in this swamp trying to stop the one vehicle from sliding off the edge into the abyss. And I remember looking around and realizing, because I'm having a blast, and I remember re- looking around everybody's face, checking everyone and realizing, I'm the only one having fun here. I can really see this. There's something wrong, <laughs> either with me or the way they're perceiving what we're doing.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, and that's one of the things that I would have to say, you know, that I have to keep checking myself because as an organizer, you do feel responsible. So even though I'm not a tour guide, I don't own a tour company. I am bringing 15 people who I don't know uh, for the most part, you know, uh, to the middle of nowhere on a motorcycle. And so when we're at 14,000 feet and we're about to go down some steep, treacherous, Mountainside, and it's snowing like crazy. I'm sick to my stomach, not because I'm concerned about my riding so much, as I just don't want anybody to have a bad experience. Like, or, or I mean, I mean, a tragic experience, right? And so, you, you know, you do you do have those, you know, those feelings along the way when when people are cursing and when they're angry and when they're pushing their hill, bike uphill or having somebody else do it and cursing because this is the dumbest thing ever <laughs> in the moment. I'm like, oh, they might not come back. Um, and then, of course, when you're all said and done and, you know, the beer is flowing and everybody's talking, they're like, assign me up for next year. I can't wait. <laughs> you know, and-
1: See and be seen. That's a great saying for a motorcyclist. And that's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Uh, We had Daryl from Cyclops on a while back. Cyclops is a family-operated business. And I like that, you know, because with a family-operated business, you you can pretty much guarantee this can be run with pride because they're the ones answering the phones. And the Van Nguyen houses, that's actually Daryl's last name. Um, that's what they are. They're all about quality. They make all kinds of lighting for motorcycles. The riders themselves. In fact, um, you should probably check out their Instagram account. Uh, there's some great photos coming up in, on their account. Anyway, um, all kinds of lighting for us riders, including auxiliary lighting and LED replacement headlights. And as you probably know with LED, is it's stunningly bright. It's instant on. and has a low power draw. So that frees up energy for things like heated vests, etc., which is really important if you ride a bike that doesn't have a, a, a huge charging system on it Um, but otherwise even still it, it lessens the load on your stator they have the evo safety turn signal system Now, this is really cool it turns your front turn signals into bright white driving lights and your rear signals into super bright red brake lights So bright LEDs to catch the uh, attention of the car behind you. And that is just paramount or in front for that matter. Um, Again, see and be seen. Cyclops Adventure Sports, they've got a ton of lighting gear just for motorcycles. But actually, they've got it for dirt bikes, snowmobiles, even bicycles. Um, They're really like lighting is their thing. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. And please mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. IMS has been around since 1976, making foot pegs like the ones that I run on my bike. They have uh, all kinds of pegs to choose from for us adventure riders. They've got the ADV1 and the ADV2, which are large platform pegs meant for more comfortable um, ride on the highway, but also the added leverage you get when you take a big bike off-road. And um, because, I mean, let's face it, we've learned this, I'm sure, through our Rider Skills Program, weighting those pegs is what you do to steer your bike while you're standing up imsproducts.com anytime you're dealing with them throw in there that you heard them here on adventure rider radio imsproducts.com Hey, who plans the route? How do, you, how do you figure out where you're going to go? What's the objective with the route? And what sort of local support do you get along the way? Or do you have planned?
0: Yeah, that's critical, right? So the how we choose parks, we have to have obviously a park where the motorcycles are used and needed. We have to have an NGO in the country of origin to buy the motorcycles, get them licensed and insured. We can't do that, and so we've got to have a local nonprofit partner um, that can do all that work for us and make sure that the bikes are paid for and licensed and ready to go when we get there. Um, and then we need uh, we do need a tour company uh, of some kind to to make any reservations that have to be made or supply any camping that has to be done or that sort of thing. So in Mongolia, the, the the executive director, the president of the Mongol Ecology Center, which is our nonprofit, he actually also runs uh, Mongolia Quest, which is just a phenomenally successful tour company in Mongolia. And so he knows the country upside down and backwards. And if you've heard of the Eagle Festival in Mongolia that they do now every year, he was an organizer of that. So Badril is his name. And so he he helps with all the Mongolia stuff and just has it dialed. And he already gave us three options for next year to consider he also did, along with my partner, Wesley, all of the planning on the route um, in Nepal and worked with a local tour company there because the local tour company then provides the, uh, you know, the pickup trucks and the support drivers and that sort of thing. And then in Patagonia, it was actually Moto Discovery, Skip and Alex from Moto Discovery out of Colorado. Um, but we contracted with them. Um, and of course, they gave us a great rate because they love what we're doing. Uh, they were our uh, support uh, down in Patagonia, so they took care of all the hotel reservations, they booked the vehicles, they did the driving. Um, they were sometimes on the bike with us and sometimes not. So, so it's really a, th- a three-legged stool. You know, we've we've got to have the park and the government support. We've got to have the nonprofit um, to do the procurement, and then we've got to have uh, somebody to guide us and provide that you know that that actual support. So it's been different in each of the locations naturally that we go to. Uh, but we've just stuck up a, a relationship with International Ranger Federation, and so that's a nonprofit out of um, Australia. But they have connections to every uh, country that has park rangers and organizations around the world. And the World Wildlife Fund WWF uh, is also now helping us in a, in a variety of countries. So if we can get these nonprofits that have uh, branches in different countries then that's going to make things so much better. And Bhutan's a great example of uh, the WWF folks in Nepal introduced us to the WWF folks in Bhutan. And we had a meeting with them a couple of weeks ago. And we may end up doing a rally uh, in Bhutan, which, by the way, speaking of going back to what we were talking about earlier, Bhutan, instead of GDP, gross domestic product, um, they have their uh, GDH, gross domestic happiness, and that's a real thing, and uh, you can you can Wikipedia it, and they measure their happiness quotient in that country, and I'm like, oh, I want to go there. <laughs> that sounds, you know, like an amazing place. Mm-hmm. So they also have uh, an so
1: interesting the- symbol in their country that they um, that you find everywhere.
0: Is that the um, the uh, the Buddhist symbol that was uh, co opted by our Nazi friends? Uh, from what I understand,
1: is the penis they seem to have uh, oh, all over the that- place.
0: Yes, that's the fertility. Yes. Um, thank you. It's, uh my I just got texted a picture of that actually two days ago by my friend from there. So you are correct. Mm, it's a, the it's, other one. I was thinking of the other symbol, the Buddhist symbol, because you see it all over Nepal. Oh, of course, yeah. a lot of Buddhist countries, and that's when people misinterpret that a lot.
1: But the GDH, that's that's pretty amazing because that that is a government. Um, yes, that's, absolutely. That's, that's a government thing where they're, where they're they're measuring the happiness of their people. I mean, it's pretty amazing.
0: It really is. And, and the United Nations, you know, has not adopted it, but they've recognized it. And a lot of countries have studied it. And uh, when you start looking into it, it's it's quite fascinating. And it's tied to ecology. It's tied to environmental health, social justice. It's like, wow, they are onto something. Um, and so we'd love to support, obviously, what they're doing. So that's um, I don't know yet, but that's um, that's on the radar for sure.
1: The the, um, the bikes that you're supplying to the rangers, the rangers are using them to, to make patrols, etc. Um, how does it change what they do?
0: They're, you know, what they're able to do uh, is patrol vast segments of, of land. See, here in this, in this country, we have, you know, in a place like Yosemite, we have, you know, a thousand employees and hundreds of rangers. And they just have a couple to, to patrol parks the same size. So... They are loading up uh, their camping gear, their food, everything they need uh, for a week to 10 days and they're striking out and they're on their own and they're not armed in Mongolia and they're patrolling. And so they're, they're looking for poachers, they're looking for illegal mining, they're looking for other threats, they're inventorying species, um, looking at the effects of climate change and all these things from the back of a motorcycle and or a horse. And uh, in, in northern Mongolia, they actually mount and ride uh, reindeer to do patrols, uh, up near the Russian border in the snow. When the motorcycles can't get through the deeper snow, they will revert to horses and reindeer, you know, to patrol, but they'll ride the bikes in the winter as well. I've seen pictures of these bikes over there fully tricked out with yak wool seats and handlebar covers and they're riding and it's, um, you know, it's 30 below centigrade, um, and just incredible, um, sturdy (laughs) Rangers. And so they're 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 taking all these measurements and they're doing this inventory and they're patrolling and they're observing and um, all of it for the most part I would say probably eighty percent seventy to eighty percent of their their patrol year is spent on a motorcycle. And so uh, it's an incredibly useful and important tool for them that they couldn't live without. Uh, And every time you go to uh, a a gear in Mongolia, they have a horse and they have a motorcycle. That's just ubiquitous everywhere you go. So it's that kind of culture. Even the herders that are out with the goats, the cashmere goats and the sheep and the camels, they're herding sometimes from a horse. Many times from a motorcycle. So it's just part of their culture. It's part of their life. And the same thing in other cultures in, in Asia and elsewhere and in Africa where the, the motorcycle allows them to get places faster, to get to places Jeeps and trucks can't go, um, and to cover more ground more efficiently and more effectively and hopefully for them you know, more safely as well.
1: With With them going off on their own, you know, say packing their camping gear and their food, et cetera, and them being the only ones in small areas when they're going to remote remote places, it would seem somewhat futile to deal with or even worry about poachers because I mean, what do you do when you when you arrive to somebody who's poaching? obviously they're armed and you've got a a reindeer and and your camping gear
0: yeah, and so in the in the case of Mongolia, what we find and again, every country is different, right, so poaching in Africa. Um, and, and the ranger work in Africa is lethal. There was just a ranger in Virunga National Park killed last week by poachers. Wow. That happens all the time in Africa. In Mongolia, because it is not a gun-based culture, most of the poaching that's happening is not actually happening with firearms. It's happening with traps um, or other means. Mm. And so the the rangers there don't face the thing. Tham- the, the poachers run. They they don't confront. And so – and then the rangers will go – if they need to, they'll go find a local law enforcement person and they'll track them down, that sort of thing. So it is very different. And we've been working with the government of Nepal and through some of our nonprofits there to try and get firearm authority for the rangers there because we feel like that's only going to increase uh, as time goes on, um, the, the risks and threats to them. Um, but there have been very few um, interactions. And as I mentioned earlier, the bikes were burned, but they're not – hurting the rangers in mongolia specifically and so in that case um just hearing the motorcycle coming can send the poachers heading off running in in a different direction um and interestingly we've also uh in a couple of places introduced drones to them so that they can actually fly a drone into a ninja miners camp or a poachers camp and that really freaks out the bad guys because they they did they don't believe that these guys have that technology ninja miners Ninja miners, ninja mining is a, is a term, and I don't know if it's specific to Mongolia, but it's just one or two people. So, as a it's kind of like here in the u s maybe where you have a couple of people that are maybe growing pot illegally on public land. We've had that a lot historically before it was legal that some place like Yosemite would have a couple of people kind of fix a plantation uh, in the park and set up irrigation and grow marijuana plants you know on public land kind of hidden off in the woods somewhere. Ninja mining's the same way. It's one or two people who maybe find a trace of something copper or something else, and they just do their just they, they do their own excavation. Um, So that's what that's what is meant by by ninja mining. It's small scale, uh, one or two people, um, but they can make a terrible mess and, you know, create some real issues with, uh, you know, the habitat and things like that as they're starting to dig and, you know, create drainages and all sorts of things that, that mess with the local environment.
1: So, when it comes to Mongolia or the other parks that you've helped, let's let's talk about Mongolia in particular. When these uh, the ranger finds someone doing something like this, what do they do? Do they have the uh, the backup? Is there infrastructure there for them to actually get something done, or are they just logging yeah. it?
0: Yeah, so there, there there is infrastructure for that. They work with local law enforcement, and so and the you know quite often they know each other. So that's that's the other thing you find a lot. You don't find a lot of international people coming in to Mongolia to do poaching, you find a lot of local community members doing it.
1: You mean the ranger so, knows the person the, that's poaching?
0: That's correct. So. Exactly. They, they they often even know about it ahead of time. Like they hear rumors, right? They, these are small towns and small communities. And so they may know, but just not be able to catch somebody. And so, well, if they witness them in the act, they don't have to do anything except for go back to town and tell the local law enforcement, hey, I saw this guy doing this and they will go and arrest him that night. Uh, Um, so there is, there is that, uh,
1: because Mongolia is only like 3 million people, I think in total. It's, it's, uh, I think the second large, largest landlocked country. Um, so you're talking a very large country with very few people in it.
0: Yes. It's the least densely populated country in the world. And so once you get outside of the capital city and some of the larger cities, it is really, really sparse. Um, and so, yeah, so they – but again, we would like them to have arresting authority. We, we believe that as, as is the case in most countries, they should be able to act on the spot. Um, you know. But the other thing is as you're out in the wilderness on a motorcycle, what are you going to do with the person? You don't have a squad car to put them in. Um, you know, you're not going to chain them to a tree and come back and get them in a couple of days, right? So, it might not be bad idea. <laughs> yeah, it might not be, um, but uh, it is an incredibly challenging thing for them. That they they have uh, some very unique challenges, and they do a pretty remarkable job with it, uh, given some of the restrictions that are imposed, even by their own government rules.
1: So by having a bike that's reliable, that they can count on, that takes one huge problem away from them and lets them deal with the other things they have to deal with, in the, in the, especially in developing countries.
0: It does. Yeah, and if, and if you've ever been, you know, riding in some of these countries and you've seen some of the motorcycles that they're riding, you, you see that they're, they're really good at riding three, three and four up, maybe with a goat strapped over their lap too, um, but they're only going, you know, 10 kilometers an hour right, seated and just just putzing along because that motorcycle isn't built for anything more. And so we train them a little bit about riding, standing on the pegs and going at higher speeds because they've grown up on these really slow, plodding uh, Chinese motorcycles. And so that's one thing we do do with them is, is, again, we give them a bike that can go further and faster, but that also comes with some risk. So we try to get them to wear protective gear. We train them how to ride standing up. Um, you know, at at higher speeds, and uh, and it really does. It is a game changer for them. We've just we've seen it now again and again.
1: Who owns the bikes when when you take them to the Mongolian Rangers? Wh- where are they registered?
0: The bikes are registered in Mongolia. They're owned by the Mongol Ecology Center for three years, and after three years, they become the property of the government. And um, to be completely honest, the you know the rationale for that is that there are some bad actors out there who would take the donation and then sell the motorcycles. Mm. And this, this has happened in many countries. This is not unique to Mongolia. And so the NGO uh, Mongol Ecology Center determined that the best way to prevent that is that we maintain the title um, until there's demonstrated, you know, use over a period of time. And then, so that's the model there. In other cases, The, you know, the NGO in, in Argentina, um, Banco de Bosques, they bought the bikes. It took them almost nine months to complete the transfer paperwork to give them to the government just because of, you know, red tape in a different country. Um, uh, in Nepal, WWF is giving them directly to um, the federal government there. So it's different in every country. We just work with the NGOs and what they think is most appropriate. And if they want to maintain title for a while, or if they don't, but that's that is how we do it in Mongolia, where where most of our bikes have been donated. Is the Mongol Ecology Center is the the owner for three years.
1: And who pays for the maintenance during that uh, during that time and afterwards? Is does the government actually pay to maintain these bikes?
0: They do. Yeah. They, each ranger has a stipend. Um, one thing, you know, that you, you don't realize, you know, sometimes is just how remote they are. And, uh, and again, when they're living individually, we're used to a motor pool. You know, in a place like a national park in the U.S., all those government vehicles come home to nest in the same place every night. And there's a mechanic there that keeps them up, does the oil changes and all that. Mm-hmm. In Mongolia, they're far too spread out um, to have any sort of a motor pool or any sort of a, you know, a universal mechanic that can work on all the bikes. Each one of them has to understand the motorcycle and be able to maintain it themselves, just like they take care of their own horse. Um, there is no motor pool. So, um, so the government gives them, you know, the, the basic resources, certainly nothing extra, um, but enough to make sure that if they need a new chain, you know, they get a new chain. Uh, if they need a new clutch lever, they get a new clutch lever. And, and as I mentioned, we've seen the bikes now um, from 2014 and 2015 and the condition that they're in and the miles that are on them. Um, it's really rewarding to see that they have had the means and capacity to maintain them themselves and not need us for that extra task.
1: I want to ask you about, just to, to wrap it up here, I want to ask you about downsides. Are there any downsides to this? Do you find that government agencies, any government agencies, um, don't like what you're doing, are, aren't sort of open to the help um, from an outside um, body, and particularly from another country, a foreigner, and um, is it not adding to their expense when you bring more vehicles to them to maintain, and does that become an issue?
0: Well, certainly that hasn't – that has not yet become an issue. We, we, we haven't been – we haven't identified you know, any countries certainly that we've worked in so far who haven't been effusive uh, in their praise uh, in, in acceptance of what we're doing because they know you – know, they're aware. They don't have the capacity to do this kind of thing. And uh, you know, Mongolia is a great example where because of what we did the first two years – The German Development Bank, who works a lot um, with the national parks in Mongolia, heard about what we were doing, and they gave the government the money to buy 60 new Yamaha AG200. So that doubled our output. We didn't do that. We inspired that. We didn't do it. But we inspired somebody else to do it, and the government is just you know, fully embracing this. And, and they've actually sent people from the ministry along with us. We had somebody from the US ambassador's office riding on our rally this year in August. That was a first for us. So what we do get pushed back on sometimes is what is obviously perceived as the consumptive and destructive nature of motorcycles. And people see them as antithetical to environmental protection. And in some cases, that's clearly true, just like almost any activity that you engage in that can be taken out of bounds and done improperly. um, Motorcycling can be done improperly as well. But in most of the world outside of the West, people are using motorcycles for everyday life, you know, to commute, to, to work for family life, social life, ranger life, all of those things um, uh, people need motorcycles for. And so if we can provide a more efficient motorcycle, um, a motorcycle that's used less because it goes farther, if that makes sense, um, we're actually helping, um, to reduce our carbon footprint and not add to it. We're not going to go back to a time when the poachers are using horses and the Rangers are using horses and everybody's equal. Um, they're not going to use a camel to catch a poacher. It just can't happen. And so, um, so that pushback, you know, does does happen sometimes. And I understand it. I understand that people don't want us to use petroleum based transportation. And and when electric motorcycles get to the point where we can donate e-bikes to a park somewhere, um, man, we'll be right there. Um, and, and we're headed that way, but we're not there yet. And so what we're doing uh, is improving uh, the health of the ecosystem where we go, even though we're using, uh, you know, a petroleum based transportation tool to do it.
1: And I think this is some of the problem with naysayers um, is they'll take something like that and they'll use that to try and discredit the whole operation. And, and the fact of the matter is there is no perfect cure other than if humans weren't here. Um, there's no perfect cure for this sort of thing. You, you have to work with what you've got. And I think that's, that seems to be what you're doing.
0: Well, yeah. No, you think you're right. I mean we're not you – know, we can't You know, just snap our fingers and have everybody stop driving. Um, nor should we. That's just not, there, there are a lot of solutions out there that we can all be a part of to move the ball down the field. And each time one of us looks at investing in a new vehicle for ourselves, we need to consider a lot of things about that vehicle, including, you know, planetary considerations, not just our own. And the same thing as we go through the process of sourcing these motorcycles. Again, we're trying to improve. Uh, the type of motorcycle being given, not just that it's better and faster, but it's also more efficient. It's also easier to maintain in the long run. It's not disposable. Um, all of these things contribute to environmental protection, um, not just the fact that they're protecting an endangered species, but actually the kind of motorcycle they use and how they use it in and of itself has some environmental impact. Um, and so we work every day uh, to to mitigate and improve that.
1: Tom, it sounds like just incredible work you're doing. Thanks very much for coming on the show.
0: You bet, Jim. Thanks again. It's great to talk to you as always.
1: Rally for Rangers. That was Tom Metema from Rally for Rangers. Their website, rallyforrangers.org. And of course, that link and more is in our show notes. Mind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by max bmw motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com also best rest products at www.cyclepump.com green chili adventure gear at greenchiliadv.com and Moto Breeze chain oilers at motobreeze.com hey you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies anytime you see them anywhere you mention that you heard them here on adventure rider radio Another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Hey, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Check out the show notes for all of our episodes and have a look at our other show that we do once a month called ARR Raw. It's roundtable discussions with a group of us that talk about all types of things motorcycle travel related. Hey, and we would love to have your support because we've built this whole thing on a model of some advertising and listener support to help make this or to make the thing work and we need you. So drop by the website, have a look around. And while you're there, click on the support button. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. I'm Liz Jansen and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.